Welcome to the Pursuit of Evolution. I'm your host, Casey Jordan. This is the place to be for open-minded folks looking to build self-trust and be proactive as they grow through life-changing moments. We go beyond inspiration to give actions and resources every episode. And with that, let's get into the show. Naomi Yano and she, her. Can we go back to 2010 and just dive right in with a little bit about your story? Yeah, I'd say that's sort of where this all began in some ways. So 2010, I call it my my six weeks of hell. And it started, well, I guess just before the six week mark, my daughter was born premature. She was born at about, I think it was 24 and a half weeks. So she was in the neonatal intensive care unit. And I had a two-year-old at the time and we just moved into a new house. And so just a lot of crazy, stressful busyness. So how this all sort of unfolded was, you know, we're busy just taking care of her. I find out during that period that my husband at the time is having an affair. And at that point, I'm just in shock. I don't know what to do. So I just say, okay. (laughs) And he says to me, it will end, you know, when, you know, the the certain context ends, it'll end in in a few weeks. So I'm like, okay. So that's it. I just kind of put it to the side and deal with my daughter here. And then we find out that, yeah, she has, she's on mechanical support. She will need that for the rest of her life. Would we like that for her? She can't breathe on her own. She can't even let her heart beat consistently. So it became this, is that what we'd like? So we had to deal with making that decision. We did decide we will remove the support and just let things unfold thinking she will probably die in 24 hours. So at that point, you know, I thought, okay, he's ended his affair. We can kind of move on with things. We bring her home to pass away, remove her from support. She doesn't pass away right away. She kind of goes back and forth in and out, breathing, stopping, breathing, stopping. We think she's dying. She comes back for about, was it three or four days? And during that period, I find out, oh, the affair is actually still going on. And again, I can't deal with that right now. Put it to the side. She passes away. And then I'm, you know, starting to digest all kinds of things, including her death and that this affair is also still happening and I can't do it all. So a week after she passes away, I asked my husband at the time, could you please decide what you're going to do here? Either stay here, we'll figure this out somehow, or just go. And so he decided to leave. And so he was gone a week later. And after that, that was, you know, really how all of this unfolded. And, you know, what am I going to do? What does this mean for me? And I love, you know, I I noticed in, you know, why you're here doing this podcast. It's really about some of these things, right? Like when the shit hits the fan, what do we do with that? How do we, how do we take something from that? And you know, learn, grow, maybe even thrive. So I appreciate that you, I mean, it sounds like you might resonate with sort of that idea, right? What do we do in these certain moments? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And kind of like, what a, just having everything crumble around you all at once and mm-hmm. being at such a start over point Yeah, in the midst of so much grief. Mm-hmm. Where do trying to figure out how to ask the question were you already I can't remember were you already have an education in mental health because professionally mental health is what you do 
Yes, that's right. So yeah, okay. yeah, I did at the time, but I was pretty much a newbie. So okay. I had just, I think I had graduated 2006. I had worked my first job for about two years. Okay. And, uh, and then my husband and I had decided that I would be a stay-at-home parent. Again, in mental health and in the field that he's in, we both thought, you know, it's really important those first, you know, zero to three years of life to be present and available to your child. And we both agreed with that. So we said, you know what, let's have one of us stay home. Home. I'm going to be that person and then the, till the kids are school age and we've transitioned them and I can start to back off. That's going to be my role. So yeah, it was interesting when he left, you know, what, what am I going to do? Like I, our plan was for right. me to be at home. I got to go work now. I didn't have the years of experience that a lot of people were asking for, you know, minimum five years, you can come work with us. I didn't have that. And on top of that, the shame, you know, I had someone say, Oh, you know, what do you do? I, I, well, I was trained as a couple therapist. Oh, well, you're diverse. Well, how did that work out? Like, what do you know? Right. And you know, you just, you feel horrible. What, how can I be a therapist? How can I be a couple therapist? Right. right. So it was a, yeah, a very yeah rock bottom. Now what sort of yeah. moment. Right. So perfect segue then. How did you start to build back up? Did the therapist side kick in? Did the survival side kick in? Or did you, I mean, in my, for me, when I hit the bottom of my PTSD, I just kind of sat and wallowed for a while. Like, (laughs) like how did that kind of play out then for you? Sure. I'd say all of those things at different times. And and just like you initially, it's so normal to just shock, right? Wallow. Yeah. Right. What just happened? I don't even know what to do. And so, yeah, of course, I went through that period of just completely lost, despair, hopeless. For me, a lot of shame, self-blame. It was my fault. I can't do this. I can't be a therapist. And, and you know, initially, like realistically, I, I really couldn't in the sense that, you know, if anyone were to come to me during that period and talk about relationship breakups, death of a loved one, feeling depressed, infidelity, you know, transitioning or careers, mental health issues. Like I I couldn't talk about any of it. They were all trigger issues, right? So I was completely useless as a therapist. So I had to, you know, figure out, yeah, what, what does this mean? But I think it's very normal for anyone in that initial stage to, to wallow, to just be immobilized. That's not abnormal. And I think I had to do a lot of work to sort of untangle what is true or not true about all these conclusions that I'm coming to in this moment. And yeah, a lot of, you know, struggles around, you know, what do I need to be able to do to be able to work again, right? What has to happen here in order to to get off my feet? And yeah, so it was a process. And, you know, during that time, I just got my feet wet. I just started volunteering as a therapist for a while, trying to get just hours and experience. Yeah. But before I was ready to do that, yeah, a lot of my own therapy, a lot of groups, a lot of reading, a lot of, can I even do this again before I was able to take that step? Yeah. Um, and from there it became, okay, if I can do this, I want to make the most of it. If, if I, if I have some textbook knowledge here, I want to dive deeper and I also want to bring in what it's actually like to, you know, take that advice, right? Because sometimes mm-hmm. a therapist will tell you, do this. It's not that easy. Right? <laughs> right, oh, yeah, exactly. that, yeah, just go do this thing. No, I can't actually. I want to, but I can't, right? Yep. So I have that experience from both sides of the chair, right? Yeah, I, I think that's such a powerful thing for a therapist. I mean, we all, the premise of the show, we all have stuff that happens in our life, but like, 
having a therapist who relates so heavily to that particular situation. I worked as a therapist with veterans and because Mm. I'm a combat veteran, like that's the world that I related to and could best support. And it's, it's always been, I won't say fun, interesting since then I've done a lot of public speaking about Mm -hmm. living with post-traumatic stress and a brain, brain injury. And I can talk about it both clinically, like here's what the DSM says, here's what I look for an appointment, you know, like this professional, but also like, here's the lived experience that doesn't always necessarily line up with the diagnostics. Yeah, And I feel like gives a really great insight for then your clients who are coming to you from that point of being so raw Mm -hmm. to somebody who has also been in that point. Yeah. Yeah. There is very much a, I like to think of it as a, a richness to the experience in your body, the lived experience of something that we're talking about, not just that cognitive head knowledge, the fact, yeah. right? Which we can, we can all, and I think we can all sort of relate to that in some way. I mean, an example I often think about when I'm talking to clients is, you know, if, if you think about certain life experiences, like, you know, for example, as a kid, maybe your, your mom or dad tells you, you know, moving out is going to be hard, right? Or having a baby is going to be hard. Or when you get a pet, it's going to be a lot of work. And in your head, you go, yeah, I know. And you could list off all the reasons why it's going to be hard. And then you go do it. And you're like, oh, this is what they meant. You're right. This is hard. But you already knew it was hard. Yes. Cognitively. But now you really get it in your body. Right. And and there is is an added layer when our body experiences that wisdom, that knowledge. Right. Yeah. 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 So you was looking through your website and you have a blog post recently talking about hope versus expectation. Mm. And I thought this was such an interesting thing because it's not a nuance I'd ever thought about, but as I read it, it clicked. I was like, oh, this makes total sense. Will you talk a little bit about the difference between hope versus expectation and why understanding which you're feeling matters? Yeah. And, and, you know, in some ways, I think this relates back to exactly what I said in, in a certain way, because sometimes we think we're not hoping or expecting something, right? And cognitively, we say, we say you know, I've let go of that. I don't need it. And when I talk about looking at, are you hoping or expecting? What I'm really asking you is, what is your body telling you, right? When I distinguish hope and expectation, I'm asking you, what does your body feel about this. So yeah, in that article, I, I invite, I, I think there might have been two articles that where I sort of expand on this. But you know, what I invite you to do is, is to actually, you know, think of something that you want, right? And notice how your body feels about wanting that thing, right? Mm-hmm. And this is where we're trying to figure out, are we hoping or are we expecting? And so, you know, if, if I, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, I'm going to hop online here with you today. And when I click the button, the zoom window is going to pop up, right? And I'm, Okay, so, you know, when I think about that, and I think about it, what if I hit that button, and it doesn't work? How am I going to feel? I'm going to panic, I'm going to freak out, right? And so when I think of it that way, I'm like, okay, I was expecting that zoom window to open, because when it doesn't, it means a whole other thing to me right now, I was attached to this outcome. And in that way, that's that's what I think of as an expectation that we are clinging mm-hmm. tightly, that this thing will happen. And we're not really thinking about what's, you know, what if it doesn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. Where hope I think of is something that we hold onto a little bit more loosely. And it's still okay to have dreams and ideas, but when we think about hope, it's like, okay, if it doesn't happen, how does my body respond, right? Mm-hmm. There still might be sadness, 
right? Or loss. And, and you know, in this case, let's take the exact same thing, the, the clicking this button, right? If I'm hoping to get on this call with you, but it's not expectation, it's a hope and it doesn't happen. I'm still going to be sad. So I'm going to yeah. think, oh, I really wanted to do this thing and I'm sad and I'm disappointed and, and maybe I will still try to figure out, you know, how can I connect with you? But the feeling in my body is not going to be this extraordinary panic. My mm -hmm. life is over, you know, I, I was attached to this. It means so many things. It, and sometimes it is a bit of a subtle difference, yeah. right? But it is a difference when we want something so badly or when we can hold it loosely. So I don't know if that helps to sort of define that different because I'm not opposed to hope. I think hoping is lovely. I, I want us to yes. hope, but I also recognize the the impact when we expect and we don't yeah. get it and how devastating that can be. Yeah. I'm living this right now. And as you're describing this, I'm like, oh, this is what's going on. So I had a major surgery back in November. I had to have surgery on my rib cage mm -hmm. to deal with some heart issues. And I expected eight to 12 week recovery that, you know, okay. I'm relatively young, I'm fit. This should go well. I'll be back to normal. We picked the timing of the surgery so that by summer I would be ready to go hiking and be yeah. active. And right. I expected that. And yeah, I have plan. had, yes. And yeah. I have had a really hard recovery. So we're nine and a half months into this recovery and I'm still dealing with daily pain management problems. And we haven't been able to do any hiking this summer. And the doctor just told me I probably need to stop kayaking for a while because oh. it's causing some problems. And there's this visceral, like, why the fuck did I do this to my body? Mm. Almost regret of making the choice for this surgery. And I've been working really hard recently to shift that to the hope side yeah. of I did this basically my rib cage was crushing my heart and my heart couldn't function right. And wow. I did this for quality of life for the next 40 years, not just yeah. this summer. Right. And right. I am getting better slowly where I'm at today versus a month ago versus four months ago. Yeah. And so really working on that hope mindset and letting go of expectations that, yeah. well, by the one mark, this will be one year mark. This will be fine. It's like, right. okay, I'm going to let go of expectation. I'm going to hope that by one year, yeah. This is where I'm at. And if I'm not, we'll keep adjusting course. Like, right. It's right. A, it's a yeah. really, I didn't even realize those were the words, yeah. but it's been a really powerful, but like you said, very subtle shift in yes. like the ultimate end goal of this surgery and this recovery really hasn't changed. It's yes. how I'm holding space exactly. for that. Yeah. yeah. And, and I love the way that you recognize this because really a, a lot of my work, my intention is to help people be aware of what they're doing that's helping them, right? Because sometimes it's like, oh, something changed, but I don't know what it is. And I want people to know, ah, we can actually define it because when we can define it and even neurobiologically help you explain what's happening in your brain, when we can get that specific, you can actually be empowered to make the choice to do that Thing, right. And, and yeah. I want to highlight some of the things that you just named that you are doing, because really there is this letting go, as mm -hmm. you said, right? you're still hanging on to the hope, the outcome, right? That, you know, the long term reason I did this, we're not we're not letting go of that. Yeah. Right? But what we are letting go of is what it's going to look like month to month and day to day to get there. Right. Yeah. And when we do that, there sometimes is a grieving. There sometimes is a sadness. Right. Yeah. And I want you know people to recognize 
that that's okay and normal, that Mm -hmm. we don't have to throw the whole thing out the window and say, I never should have done it. It's not worth it, right? You can be tempted to, but to let go of the parts that aren't serving you, which is it's got to look this way. Mm-hmm. And as you're doing, you're shifting and adapting to, I'm still holding on to that dream and, and the outcome, but I'm going to accept, you know, how it is unfolding. I'm going to pivot and adjust, mm-hmm. right? Because that's a, a huge thing in, in psychological health and well-being is flexibility. Mm-hmm. Right? When we get rigid, that's when we start bumping up against walls and suffering, when we can adapt and be open to other paths or options that we haven't been aware of that's when we can you know thrive and grow and uh, you know flow in life a little bit more with ease right so I love that you are that's exactly what you're doing (laughs) and you're noticing it yeah thank you yeah yeah and and I like too that you mentioned the grief still happens I think there's this thing that happens when I look through mental health resources just a lot of the space that I hang out in is there's this kind of like oh like learning the difference between hope and expectation and flexibility and recovery and recovery is not linear and like all of these ideas and there kind of comes this undertone I think that sneaks in of like oh if you hold on to the hope you'll let go of the grief but like I think it's so important to acknowledge like for for like another one that I, I talk about a lot in my writing is my husband and I are childless because of infertility yeah. and we made the choice to stop treatment. And I absolutely love my life. And I cannot imagine now having kids mm-hmm. and I just had to unfollow somebody on social media because they're starting IVF and it triggers my grief. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like that, like holding space for both of these. And so when we talk about recovery and we talk about finding what works, that mm-hmm. also doesn't magically mean the hard part goes away. It mm-hmm. helps us navigate through the hard part more smoothly. Yeah, I, I think you touch on a, a couple things I, I want to name. One is, yeah, because I, I don't think I agree with the idea of, and not that you're saying this, but just in general, you know, the idea of letting go or even bypassing difficult emotions, right? right. If I hope and I just hang on to that. Maybe I won't feel sad anymore, right? And and I want to not that you're saying that, but you know, I just yeah. want to be very clear. Like I, I don't think that's that's you know realistic, right? Yes. At the same time, I want to reframe a bit of what you're doing, which I think is great. Which is, you know, when something is triggering, right? I it's okay that I want to, you know, put some boundaries around that right? Or not engage with that. That's, you know, an act of love and self-care and kindness that you're doing for yourself, right? Yeah. So I guess I want to stay away from sort of this black or white sort of thinking where like, you know, I, I shouldn't feel it and I can't feel it. And I always have to put it away versus at this time in life, I don't want to engage with it. But you know, I have grieved at other times and I might grieve later, right? But for this period, I, I won't, because I think that's really important that, we take those breaks, we, we distract ourselves, we, you know, put up boundaries mm-hmm. and again, options at other times in life. What is it like to grieve? I mean, you've done yes. that, right? You know what that's like. So, you know, yes. what is it to move back and forth into those places yeah. when I choose to, and when it's helpful yeah. and when do I consciously choose not to as an act of self-love and care? Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So 
then does a person prioritize healing in a world where we've got a million things thrown at us at all the, all the times all the angles we're navigating our grief we're trying to find a job because now we don't have our partner like how do you prioritize healing within the chaos of existing on this planet yeah great question this the answer actually for me comes from something that I saw in your most recent LinkedIn posts that I just, I love, which is because prioritizing healing is going to look different from person to person, right? Everyone's context is going to be different. Everyone's resources are going to be different. And the thing that you put in there that I, your, your number one thing you, in that post, you said building trust in yourself. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think that's huge. And, and what I mean by that specifically is, and I think you allude to this too in this post, is paying attention to what you're actually feeling moment to moment, allowing that emotion and seeing that feeling, experiencing that as information that's going to help you prioritize mm-hmm. your next step, even if it's just a baby step, right? Yeah. And particularly when it is extra chaotic, I think we have to be extra attuned to those emotions. When I initially was impacted, you know, right after, okay, my daughter just died, my husband just left, there is a roller coaster of feelings there that I've got to prioritize. And in those moments, sometimes the priority is just go take a nap. Yeah. Or eat something now. Yeah. But I've got to be paying attention to my body to pick up on those signals and, you know, know which, which one is the loudest right Mm -hmm. now. Sometimes it's, I just need to cry or I need to shut down and feel nothing and just lie paralyzed in my bed. Yeah. And if I'm not paying attention to that, maybe, maybe I really do not need to just be alone and lie immobilized in my bed. But if I don't pay attention to that feeling that's telling me that. And I force myself to go out and socialize and put on a happy face and whatever. How am I going to feel afterwards if I just ignored what my body told me? Right. I'm probably going to be really drained, really tired and worse off. Right. So when things are chaotic, when we've got to prioritize, I'd say pay attention, let your let yourself feel and mm-hmm. ask yourself that question. What is this emotion telling me in this moment that I need? Mm-hmm. And we're going to learn, and this really is, I think, mindfulness meditation in some ways, right? Can, can I notice what's happening in my body? The, you know, if I make a decision, may, maybe, maybe I do go out and force myself and I come home and now I'm going to notice, wow, did that help me or not? Mm-hmm. And if I notice, oh, I'm exhausted. Don't beat yourself up, but go, okay, next time you notice that you really just want to lie in bed, remember what you just learned. Ah, Maybe it's better if I stay home today. Okay, I'm going to try that out and see how it feels. Oh, do I feel better? Maybe I made a good choice. Now I'm prioritizing. Now I'm figuring out what I need to do next. Because sometimes Mm -hmm. prioritizing is messy. We might not know right away. I might think I need this and then figure out, oh, I actually don't. Okay, let's shuffle the order. Prioritize again. Let's keep trying. And that's okay. I love that. Yeah. Get it right. (laughs) Exactly. And then exactly for me is the root of that self-trust thing. It's not that you're going to get it right every time. Mm -hmm. It's that you're going to get through it every time. Yes. And so it's that ability to look and say, Hey, going out was not the best choice. Next time we're going to do this or, Hey, you know what? 
I have a thousand things on my to-do list, but I really, I need 45 minutes of sleep. So I'm going to go lay down. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, that to me is that key of that trusting yourself is that yes, you'll learn, you'll grow, mm-hmm. test and retest yeah. and you'll get through it. Right. You will right. absolutely make the bad, the wrong choice from time to time, yeah. <laughs> but that's how we work through it. Exactly. And, and, and like you said, I mean, it's, that is building trust. Trust isn't this yeah. automatic light switch thing where boom, I know everything and I'm confident in myself. No. And especially yeah. if you haven't trusted yourself, how yeah. do you create that confidence in yourself? It's exactly the process you just named. You yeah. try it out, you make mistakes, but the more you listen to yourself and it works and you feel better, the more you build that trust. Right. right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Shifting directions a little bit. So you have referred to many times in the conversation, how things feel in the body mm-hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also big into the meditation. You have mm-hmm. a regular meditation practice. Talk to us a little bit about the body side. I'm a very analytical person. And mm. when it came to being a therapist, it was a very like, let's sort this and categorize this kind of approach. Yeah. And the body side and the mindfulness side is so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't currently have a seated meditation practice. Okay. I'm not disciplined. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I am horrible at that. But <laughs> What I do try to do is just the daily mindfulness. So as I'm washing the dishes, what is that hot soapy water feel like on my hands and so forth? I could not arrive though at that place without having done done some disciplined uh, meditation. So I did complete uh, John Kabat-Zinn's the mindfulness-based stress reduction. I did for a period around 2011, I think, meditate for an hour a day, very, very disciplined for something like 10 or 12 weeks. And that sort of built that muscle to be able to now catch myself more quickly and be mindful more quickly. But I do to answer the question more specifically. So mindfulness meditation is, is yes, a huge, important muscle, I, I think for all of us to develop. And that is, again, that capacity to notice your own body and take that as information without judging it, with just some kindness and acceptance to learn about yourself, to learn what are your options. Instead of reacting, what are my options? Can I slow down and intentionally decide how I'm going to respond to you or this situation? The other piece too, and this is more the, the clinical, my clinical experience is I am certified in what's called emotionally focused therapy. And I find that it just really builds on this concept of mindfulness in the way that I relate to myself or in the way that I relate to others. Because what emotionally focused therapy does is it helps us to slow down really and notice what's triggering me to have this response. And what do I usually do when I get triggered? Right. And we usually have automatic action tendencies mm-hmm. and those automatic tendencies usually develop in places where they are adaptive. They work. That's why we do them. Mm-hmm. But when we sometimes get stuck is when we use that same action tendency in a situation where it's no longer helpful. Mm-hmm. And so what emotionally focused therapy helps us do is recognize, you know, why did I develop this tendency? In what context does it serve me well? How is it working for me now in this situation? And if it's not working so well, then what is my other option? And in order to be able to do all of that, we really do need that mindfulness muscle working where we are we are getting all this information. 
right? Mm -hmm. We're slowing down and we're able to name, ah, this is what happened. This is what I feel. And this is what I've been doing with it. And, and I think, again, that awareness, mm -hmm. incredibly empowering. If I can know this about myself, wow, I can see that there might be other options for other things I could do yeah. other than this one thing I keep doing over and over and over, right? Yeah. I think there's so much power in that thing of like, slowing down and stepping back. And I think I, I like my brain comes to some kind of literal context of like, don't respond to the email right away. Mm. Don't answer the phone. I, if somebody that, you know, that you've set a boundary with, you see their name pop up on caller ID, you don't have to pick up the phone right away. Yeah, Like yeah. take that step back. And okay. Like, how am I feeling? Am I in a place that I can mm -hmm. respond thoughtfully? And I think more in a world that is getting so fast paced with text and Mm. email like yeah that ability to just stop and think for a second I think yeah. is such a powerful skill and reflect on what are you feeling and what are my options I love yeah. that yeah it, it really is and and I want to poke at it a little bit because I, I can imagine as a client like hearing me the therapist talking about it and I can also imagine how sometimes we can't do that right like yeah. I think about when my ex first left and I was just in this state of panic and anxiety and you know, I knew, okay, yeah, if, if I'm feeling anxious, if I just can calm down and slow down and think about this, then, you know, maybe I won't text him. Right. But what happens when you can't actually do that, right? Like, yeah, yeah great advice. That's nice, Naomi, but, you know, back to, but I can't actually do that in the moment, right? Because right? it, it's hard sometimes. So yeah. it's a great tool when we can do it. And if we're yeah. practicing that, that mindfulness, great, let's do that. It's not bad. But I also want to look at, okay, well, when I can't slow myself down, right, what is my other option? And, mm -hmm. and that's where I think, you know, coming back to your question about being in the body, right? Because again, mm -hmm. this is in my head, I know what to do, but in the moment, my body's not doing it. Yeah. Right? And so this is where my experience as a client in therapy and in the therapy I provide, we go to that place in your body mm -hmm. because the thing is, if that place keeps getting activated and overrides my head in those moments, I'm not going to be able to slow down. I'm not going right. to be able to pause. When that feeling gets too big, the anxiety just takes over. I can't pause. And so we go to that place and we explore it. We explore where, you know, where did this anxiety first start to get felt? Right. When did you first start noticing it? What is it actually about? And again, we're diving in there and we're gathering information, no judgment. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I could see how even myself, sometimes a lot of people, myself included, can judge it. I shouldn't be anxious. <laughs> right. Why, why yeah. am I texting my, why do I want to text my husband? He just had an affair. He doesn't want me to get over it. You deserve better. Don't text. And I want to uh, say, yeah, I know all of that, but I still start texting. So <laughs> Right. So in therapy, we go to that place. What is that really about? Yeah. Why must you feel so compelled that you have to have to do this? What is it that you need so desperately? What is it that you think is going to happen if you can just send that text out? What's the response you want? That's it's just going to fix all of this. Right. And we actually we allow yourself to feel all of that, even if it's completely irrational. Mm -hmm. And we explore it, we acknowledge it, we validate it, we express it. And then we also give some space maybe to correct it. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. Maybe it's not true, whatever it is you're believing in that moment. Right. 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 But still finding that space, even if it's afterwards is like, I used to have panic attacks and in the moment, there's nothing I can do. The the adrenaline is rushing. The anxiety is rushing. The on switch is on. (laughs) And I had to kind of teach my husband when we first started dating, he'd never been around anybody with any kind of mental health issues, really, let alone big full-blown panic attacks. And I had to teach him like, in the moment, I need you to do X, Y, and Z. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's all my brain can process. And that will help me to calm down and slow down. And I had to figure that out. Like for me, I really like to be hugged tightly. Mm -hmm. A lot of veterans do not want to be touched. Ah, And so like, I had to, after a panic attack, figure out, okay, what feels good for me, being hugged or not being hugged. And like, articulate that to him. And then we learned, we'd kind of debrief. So like once I calmed down and sometimes even days later, we'd come back, I'd say, hey, here's what happened that I think set that off. Mm -hmm. And he Mm -hmm. like, this is the reason I married the man. He learned all of my triggers and learned to intervene as fast as my adrenaline would kick on. Beautiful. And so, yeah, like it was the the power of that communication and for both of us, because then also I learned to see it faster. And so it didn't necessarily mean that I right away stopped the panic attacks, Mm -hmm. but they got smaller because I could see it and be like, oh, there's the trigger. Oh, there's the adrenaline and the panic attack. Damn it. But we could pull through it quicker. And then it got to be where he would just reach out and grab a hold of me. And it was like, it almost kind of like yeah. jarred me enough to just like skip through it and just right. become a blip of anxiety. And yeah, you know, yeah, is, is I think that, like you said, is I think that was an important distinction that even in the moment, you can't take the time sometimes, yeah. whether that's exactly. that irrational mind, the reality yeah. of a trigger, yeah. but taking that time somewhere, like exactly. what did I feel? What kicked it off? sorting right. that out and being After. able to articulate Later. that yeah. is so much power so so much power to be able to articulate those things yeah yeah and and it's it's like you said earlier there is this this learning process right in the moment you don't catch yourself but you know what later on you go back you reflect you talk about it you learn and you take that information right and it impacts the next time yeah. i think you're also making a great distinction here between different kinds of strategies that work at different times or in different moments. And they're all great. Again, we want a lot of options because yeah, yeah, in that moment, if I can't think straight, it's so helpful to have something outside of me interrupt that, whether that's Mm -hmm. your partner, right? Whether you have a sticky note on the wall, whether you have an object that you carry around that you can hold onto, and that's going to interrupt your experience to say, hang on, come back, right? That, we need to be able to do that in those moments when we just, when we can't do anything else. And it's a great option. And then the other option is, okay, when I'm not in that moment, can I now sit down and think about what happened and mm-hmm. you know what, what might help me slow down so I don't get there so fast? Or in the case of what I was talking about with you know my anxiety and sort of the, the attachment wounds, are mm-hmm. there things I could talk about in therapy that are gonna address where that anxiety first came from so that I can prevent it and and actually heal it. So it won't pop up again. So we're looking at, again, options, 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 right? One isn't better than the other necessarily, but can can we be flexible in what we're going to do in any given moment? What's going to work best in this moment, right? Right. Right. Love it. Yes. I think the toolbox is a 
always growing collection Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. trying new things and at different points in recovery things that I relied on 10-15 years ago I don't need those tools anymore because I already respond differently and things that I do now there's no way I could have like used that tool 10 years ago and what might work this week might not work next week because things hit different from day to day and I, I love this kind of undertone of like there's no right way to work through any of this mm. and it's figuring out what works best for you and testing and exploring yeah, and, and making your own box of resources. Yeah. Yeah. I, I listened to a talk. It was a while ago. I don't know if you know Rizma Menachem, but he gave a talk and he, he actually referenced somebody else and I don't know who the other person is. So I'm just putting breadcrumbs out because I don't know who the actual source is for this, but he talked about somebody who renamed the uh, toolbox as a toy box. Mm-hmm. And what I loved about that, he said, you know, part of the reasoning why is when we think about toolbox, we think there's something broken and I got to go fix it. And this was kind of reframing. You're not broken. You don't need tools to get fixed. You have a box of toys, things that you've used. And when I think about it, all of these tools, even the ones that seem dysfunctional right now were adaptive when they were created right and they continue to be adaptive if you happen to find yourself in that same dysfunctional environment and so there's nothing wrong with these things that might seem really dysfunctional and awful because if you put that person back in that same environment it might actually be the best thing to do so even something like shutting down and turning off all my emotions if I'm in a traumatic place where it's not safe to feel, turning all that off is actually maybe the best thing to do to survive. So I want to throw that in the toy box because if I find myself in that sort of trauma again, I might actually want to use that toy to get through. It's not a bad thing. I probably and hopefully don't need to use it as much or hopefully ever now if I can be in healthy environments and I can feel safe. I could bury it in the bottom, but if I ever find myself again, it was, it was a useful thing I did back then. Yep. And I I really want to frame it that way because I think sometimes we're really hard on ourselves about some of the things we've done that aren't helpful now. Yeah. And I want to be compassionate and kind. You did a great job with what you had, right? Yes, exactly. I say that to clients, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, this has been delightful. Tell us where we can learn more about you, more resources from you. Yeah, so I have a number of things I'm developing, have developed and am developing. Right now, what is available is I do have a free healing guide. It really outlines in a broad way the steps that I went through to heal. It doesn't go super in depth. There are very practical, especially at the beginning, very practical questions to ask yourself to gather some of this emotional information I'm talking about. There are coping strategies, concrete ones, some of the things we kind of touched on today. I also have links to some guided meditation videos, again, to help to calm your body. And then I sort of outline the bigger things I had to do psychologically in some ways to find these other options. So there is that free healing guide, which is available on my website, my emotional ICU website. 
<laughs> on that website. And I also have a private practice website, Naomi Yano Psychotherapy. On both of them, I'm trying to just share information. It's all free, just articles and blogs, like the one that you read about hope and expectation. Because again, I just really want empower, to empower people to just understand what's happening for them, to, for it to make sense, yeah. right? This is, this is just education and information I want everyone to have access to. So there's lots of articles there as well. I also have an ebook, a very short one that I start to share my own experience as a client, you know, what it was like to go through that trauma, what it felt like mm. as a client, including those moments of, you know, that therapeutic tool doesn't make sense. This is how it actually feels. Right. And I also share that clinical perspective of this is what's happening in my body as this is unfolding as a therapist watching myself. I'm making sense of my experience. So it you, you okay. get both sides of the coin. So that's on Amazon. Okay. I am currently writing and working with an agent for a full print publication. We'll have the whole story, lots and lots of information okay. there, not out yet. So if you're interested, okay. just you know, stay in touch with me yeah. and we'll let you know when, when that's out. There's Instagram. Again, I'm posting just little tidbits and tips and information there. The YouTube video is where you can find some of the meditations. So there's lots of ways you can <laughs> connect with me awesome. um, in this internet virtual world. Awesome. And I will have everything linked to the show notes. So it's easy for people to find because I have been scoping it out and you have such great, well-articulated and digestible information out there that I'm, I'm definitely sending people your direction. So Naomi, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I was so excited to chat with you today. If you've made it to this point in the show, I want to give you a huge thank you for listening and hanging out with me. And I really hope this is just the beginning of our conversation. I love hearing from each and every one of you. So please reach out to me via email or on the socials and let me know what you think. Also, if you know somebody that needs to hear today's message, send them this episode. Who knows? You might just change their life.